In Holcomb, Kansas, just west of Garden City, this is the house in which the Herbert Clutter family lived and the house in which they were murdered. This isn't something that happens to real people in real life. This can't be real. This case occurred on November the 15th, 1959, when a father, a mother, and their two teenage children were murdered, bound and gagged, and shot in the head with a shotgun. It's interesting to me how easily these guys could not have been caught and what the ripple effects of that would have been. Hello, and welcome to a special podcast for Cold-Blooded, The Clutter Family Murders, a two-part docuseries airing on Sundance TV. Featuring never-before-seen footage and brand-new testimonials, the series is a re-examination of the 1959 murders that forever changed the small town of Holcomb, Kansas. I'm Nick Nadell with Sundance TV, and this is part two of my chat with filmmaker Joe Berlinger, the co-director and executive producer of the docuseries. In part one, Joe discussed the influence that In Cold Blood had on the true crime genre and his films Brothers Keeper and the Paradise Lost Trilogy. In part two, Joe talks about the impact of the film version of In Cold Blood as well as the startling revelations in the Cold-Blooded series. Join us, won't you? I really enjoyed the parts in the documentary where you're talking to Scott Wilson and Quincy Jones, who did the music for the In Cold Blood film, and Scott Wilson played Dick. Um, how were the actors like revisiting that? And they were in the town filming. A lot of townspeople were jury members in the film. Revisiting that, was that a, must have been an intense experience for them. Um, it's rare that a book and a movie each bust the rules of the game uh, the way each of these had. You know, the book comes out and the movie's a disappointment or the or the book's okay, but the movie's great. It's rare that the both book and movie come out within close proximity and both are considered not only great, but instant classics in their genre. And Richard Brooks, you know, did an, an amazing job on this film and deeply influenced me, uh, you know, in terms of how to go about making... You know, I'm about to go off and make a narrative film on Ted Bundy, with Zac Efron and that movie in cold blood is the movie that I'm giving to Zac and to the producers as a reference for the level of authenticity that I want to achieve. Now achieving authenticity today is a lot easier than it was in 65 or Mm. 66 when he shot it. Um, Movie came out in 67. Um, At that time, you know, doing location movies was not uncommon, but it was not as common as it is now. And in particular, the things that, Brooks did really made the actors feel like they were really reliving these events. Seven of the 12 jurors that, you know, actually were at the trial were in the film, were the real jurors. The guy who ran the clothing store where Dick Hickok passed a bad check was the actual clothing store guy in the movie. Um, The trial was shot in the same courtroom where the trial actually took place. Um, Most strikingly, and I can't believe that he got permission back then to do this the murder scenes were shot in the actual house where the murders occurred only a few years later only a few years later you know the murders occurred in november 59 the movie was shot in 65 66 so it's astounding to me that uh he was able to talk people into that and the level of authenticity in that film you feel it in every frame you know i think a whole new vocabulary of how to score films 
was being invented uh, at that time, and Quincy Jones really tapped into that and really revolutionized how music scores should be. I mean, you feel, you know, you feel what he did in every, you know, in every aspect of that film. Um, you know, not just using music, but natural sounds, and it really, in so many ways, in Cold Blood, the movie, you know, really was a genre changer. And so, for the actors, Scott Wilson, and also Brenda Curran, uh, who played Nancy Clutter, you know, this was a very life-changing event for her. But both of them spoke of the deep impact that the story itself had on them how the film was made actually being you know in the home that actually that where the murder actually took place um so yeah this even though it's you know 50 years later this film is very much uh an experience that that haunts them in some cases and as you were tracing how the crime went and how dick hickok and perry smith they're sort of spree around the country trying to get away do you think if floyd wells the cellmate of dick hickok if he hadn't come forward would they have caught them um, to be honest, I think that Floyd Wells, you know, Floyd Wells' desire for uh, for a reward, uh, you know, that information was critical. I don't think they were on the right path. And I, I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of happenstance that happened in this case. Um, you know, good detective work, but I do think that Floyd Wells' uh, tip was, you know, critical. Also, because they had sent their boots from Mexico COD to Vegas and they held off on picking them up. Had they picked them up a few days earlier before that COD delivery of those boots came, they might not have connected them to the crime, you know, effectively. So there's a lot of, you know, again, good police work, but a lot of coincidence and happenstance involved in how they were actually caught. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, pretty blown away by the revelation towards the end that the family friend of Perry Smith might in fact be his son. Is that something you discovered during talking to him? And, and how was how was that? Were you surprised by that? Yeah, I mean, that to us, that's a pretty revelatory. I mean, after he told us that story, you look at him and you see the family resemblance, you know, so it makes sense after you hear it. But for us, you know, since he's not really told that story in public before, it really was very impactful to all of us. You know, it's a, it's a pretty cool detail. Yeah, it's just haunting at the end there. For me, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for there are no winners in a crime. Even Truman Capote, who launched you know the next level of his career, became very tortured and was not able to write again. And so the pain that this man has gone through and the acknowledgement uh, that Perry was actually his father, to me, is just a metaphor for the impact of this crime has had, you know, has been painful for a lot of people. Mm, and the Hickok family, too. It's interesting to hear from just that side that they were sort of ostracized in their community and everything. And Capote's relationship with Perry Smith, obviously, he he saw him as another side of where his life could have gone, perhaps. What do you think their connection was? It, it's hard to say, you know, and I just think that, you know, they were both not tall guys. They were both had the certain kind of same personality. Uh, I think Perry, you know, saw in Truman the person he could have been had he gone down the straight and narrow because he had some artistic tendencies. I think Truman saw that, you know, because he had a difficult childhood that, you know, maybe if things hadn't gone well for him, he could have, you know, what is that line that we cross when, you know, people do bad things? Like, what triggers that line? I think he was fascinated by that. As many people know, Capote famously said that they could have been brothers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Perry went out the back door and he went out the front door. But, you know, 
under different circumstances in each of their lives, maybe the other would have been capable of what was done. At least that's what Capote feared in himself. And I think he saw the potential of Smith having a better life had the circumstances worked out differently. On the Perry Smith execution, which is minutes later, when he got up to the top of the thing, the hangman come out a little bit earlier and they were just staring each other down. Boy, they just looked at each other. And so anyway, the warden, he said, you have any last words? He says, yes, a word or two. I think that it's a hell of a thing that a life has to be taken in this manner. Any apology for what I've done would be meaningless at this time. I don't have any animosities toward anyone involved in this matter. I think that is all. After Smith made his little statement, it's just like a pin drop. I mean, complete silence. You touch a bit on, in cold-blooded, even on the death penalty issue, because even though they were did an awful crime, at the end, I've always found Perry Smith's last words very chilling. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that in terms of like what he said? And also just, you're obviously respecting the victims, but there is a bit of the death penalty issue there. It's a different time, of course. Yeah. I'm virulently anti-death penalty. Um, you know, even the movie, uh, you know, Richard Brooks, one of the things I admire about the movie In Cold Blood was that he pushed it into somewhat of a, of, of a treatise of the death penalty. The good thing about humanizing criminals and generating some empathy for them is precisely in the arena of the death penalty because... I don't believe the state has the right to take the life of another person. But more importantly, we've seen, and it's not the case with cold-blooded, of course, they were clearly guilty. But as we see in Paradise Lost, we see how easy it is to execute an innocent person. I mean, Damien Eccles, if it wasn't for Paradise Lost, Damien himself says he would be dead. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you can have no death penalty in a system that could even execute one person wrongfully. So um, there is an aspect of cold-blooded our documentary as well as the the movie the original richard brooks in cold blood movie that is a statement about the death penalty i believe that the death penalty is just morally unacceptable and how was it being in holcomb today i mean did it still feel like a town where people could leave their doors unlocked i mean obviously it's a different time but yet it's still a small town um i you know in in some ways it's frozen in time but i don't think anybody's leaving their doors Mm -hmm. unlocked in holcomb today um, you know, it's, it definitely is a town whose time uh, somewhat seems frozen in time, you know, and some people are sick of talking about this and some people are happy to talk about it, but um, they don't want to be known for just, you know, a crime that happened almost 60 years ago. Yeah, but it was interesting then to see they have a memorial in the town and so it's still affected after all this time. Uh, well, Bobby Rupp, who was the boyfriend of Nancy Clutter, has got that, um, the, who was the, the teenage girl who was murdered and they were boyfriend and girlfriend you know you see in the show how this you know still today you hear the crackle in his voice when he talks about the events i mean it's you know almost 60 years later since the murders and for him it's very present and you see that he takes care of that memorial it's actually quite touching to, to see that and why do you think the granddaughter and great-granddaughter of the clutters came forward now and wanted to talk after all this time um i think uh the right combination of you know, the team approaching them in the right way, my body of work, which I think has some integrity to it, um, the argument that this is going to be kind of the definitive documentary about their perspective. I think they, you know, I think they felt it was time to try to correct some of the the recognition that the story is just not going to go away was a factor. And I think they felt this was the time. You never know why people all of a sudden, 
you know, decide to cooperate. But as the viewers will see, they only gave audio interviews. They wouldn't let their faces be seen and they wouldn't give their names. And so, you know, I think the participation was reluctant, but we were thrilled to get even that level of participation. Yeah, and that was surprising. Was there anything about the case? Obviously, you knew about it going in, but was there anything that really surprised you during the making of the docuseries? Once you really look into the documentary evidence, there's so many coincidences. Believe me, there was excellent police work. I think Mm -hmm. the KBI did a great job. But there are so many things that happened in this case that could have allowed these killers to go free. It actually surprises me that they were caught. A lot of blunders on their part, a lot of coincidence. And when you think if they had not been caught, who knows what that book would have been? Who knows what... Originally, Capote went in, Not he didn't care about the killers. I mean, as you learn in the documentary, mm. he went in really saying, I don't care if you catch the killers, I want to I write a book about the impact of this crime on this community. And I think that relationship that he developed with Hickok and Smith, in particular Smith, really defined for him what kind of book this should be you know that portrayal of who these killers actually were and humanizing them to me is quintessential to the formula of what he called the nonfiction novel which was taking journalistic techniques and marrying them with you know fictional techniques fiction not in the sense of it being not real but taking certain liberties to develop certain qualities of empathy in the reader and i think without that quality the book would not have really been the success that it was it would not have you know what was mesmerizing was this portrait of these killers and had these killers never been caught i think the book would have made no waves might not have spawned the true crime genre that we know today probably would have meant that capote would have gotten that book out a lot quicker mm might not have been tortured he might have written other books so it's interesting to me that and fascinating just how easily these guys could not have been caught and what the ripple effects of that would have been do you think in crime investigation in general i mean whether someone is innocent or guilty do you think a lot of it comes down to coincidence and a lot of it comes down to luck in terms of the way crimes are investigated because i mean a lot of your films people who are on death row or are considered, you know, guilty by the public eye, but they're actually not. Some of it is just bad timing, bad luck. It's a community that's obsessed with, you know, satanic panic or whatever. No, that's the thing I've learned over the years. There's so much of, look, there's great cops. There's great detective work. Most people in prison are guilty. You know, it's, I'm not like saying we're littered with, but even one innocent person in prison is just a tragedy. And there's a lot more than one person in prison who's innocent, believe me. You know, so look, good luck is opportunity meets preparation to rip off many people who have said that. You know, so I think if people, you know, so when a crime gets solved by good luck, you know, it still means there's tough police work. Bad luck, being in the wrong place at the wrong time and being victim of the very human tendency to not fully understand the circumstances of a crime has you know has led to a lot of heartache and misfortune of people being wrongfully convicted so that's why you know i believe there never should be a death penalty because it's too easy to make a mistake that's why i don't believe prosecutors you know there's a doctrine of immunity where prosecutors get immunity uh they can't be sued for bad things that they do when in prosecuting a crime i think that's a bad thing i think you know one of the biggest problems in our criminal justice system is that once you're convicted of a crime, it takes forever to undo it. 
uh, takes financial resources and time. I mean, you hear about people getting out of prison who have been wrongfully convicted, having spent 20, 30, 40 years in prison. That's outrageous. And I think a lot of that has to do with the justice system is run by human beings. Human beings make mistakes, and therefore we need to be vigilant to make sure the wrong people aren't convicted of crimes. And I think we're not vigilant enough. The criminal justice system, unfortunately, is too much about winning. Prosecutors view their record as sacrosanct. There's lots of reasons for that. And too often the criminal justice system, you know, is not about the search for truth. And that's something that needs to be fixed. I've always wondered about the In Cold Blood murders if some of the shock in the community was that Dick Hickok and Perry Smith were like white boys next door. The era that this happened, if it had been two African-Americans who did it, I wonder if things would have played differently. I wonder if it, a lot of that was the shock was like, it could have been our sons, it could have been our neighbors who were the murderers and were murdered as well. I think you're right. I think the general shock that this could happen at all, then it could be happened by people who could have been in our community, really shook people to the core. All over the country. Even. Yeah, shook the nation to the core. Yeah. And then just, is there anything you hope that people get from the series? It, perhaps if they know the crime, they'll get something new, or just what do you hope they get if they know nothing about it? Yeah, you know, I think we've tried really hard to create a series that has new information. We haven't really seen a deep dive into the underlying crime, into the community, into the impact on the family itself. So I just, it's one of those stories that people think they know. And I think like any good documentary program, I think when you learn something that you weren't expecting to learn and you see the price that this family has paid, to me, that is kind of a metaphor and a cautionary tale for the entire true crime genre that I participate in. So I'm, I'm highly aware of the hypocrisy of that statement. You know, on the one hand, I participate in the true crime genre. On the other hand, I'm very wary and cautious. But let me put it this way. I'm very aware of the hypocrisy of what I do. Specifically, if God forbid I were ever the victim of a violent crime or God forbid, knock on wood, you know, one of my family members were a victim of violent crime the last thing I would do is invite a film crew in to cover the story. And yet that's what I've done for 25 years. I feel okay about it because I think I've been a good custodian of the opportunity that's been presented to me. And I feel okay about it because I only pick those projects that I think can help people or bring a newer level of truth to a situation that people might not have seen before. On the other hand, I'm highly aware of that hypocrisy. And so doing a deep dive into the book that launched this entire true crime wave that we're in right now, that we've been in, and people's fascination with crime, I want them to understand that there's a price that the victims pay. Mm -hmm. All the while being incredibly respectful to a book that, you know, I had to read a second and a third time under my covers as a teenager, scared shitless, but deeply fascinated by, you know, how true crime can really be a metaphor for so many things and really kind of launched who I am as a filmmaker. So I'm respectful of it, but I'm also hyper aware that there's a price you pay when you diminish the victim and focus on the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. I imagine you're in an interesting position. Do you get contacted because of your films to do films and investigations about crimes, about people who are maybe wrongly accused? To be honest, uh, all the time. Uh. And it's also, you know, uh, I mean, I get a letter a week 
uh, from somebody claiming to be uh, wrongfully convicted or from a girlfriend or a wife or brother of somebody who's been wrongfully convicted. And But you can't make a movie or a TV show about every letter you get, and yet you feel this sense of responsibility. And again, I don't want to make... It sounds self-important, but, you know, I do get lots of letters from people claiming to be innocent, and not that everyone who writes you is by definition innocent, but you got to believe that a good number of these people, are, you know, are writing you for a reason, and it's just, it's it troubles me that you can't act on every letter. I mean, I pass the information on to people who I think can help and do my thing, but do what I can, but... Um, I am often contacted by people. That's why Cold Blood is interesting, too, because I feel like we're used to right now all of these documentaries about wrongfully convicted criminals. And then this is a case where they were very much were rightly convicted. But then the impact is fascinating, what you covered in the documentary. Well, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. This This has been great. Good conversation. You can catch Cold-Blooded, The Clutter Family Murders on Sundance TV and the Sundance TV site and apps, where you can also watch exclusive clips.